0: This podcast brought to you by ASIS, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesandarrows.com/about/participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Accenture and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. For information architecture to stay relevant in this world of highly dynamic social websites, it must adopt new bodies of learning and new strategies. This panel, consisting of Christina Woodkey, Gene Smith, Russ Unger, and Joshua Porter, use scenario planning to look at four futures of information architecture, exploring ways IA can evolve, including one dystopian which IA does not. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast.
1: Cheers. Good All right. Good afternoon. Uh, My name is Gene Smith, and uh, I'll be moderating this panel on the evolution of information architecture. Um, I'm going to start with a little story. This panel really started for me last fall uh, in San Jose on a sunny afternoon with Christina and I uh, talking about IA. And we asked ourselves a question, a hypothetical question. Um, We asked ourselves, what would IA be like if there were no polar bear book? what would IA look like? Would we be built on the Information Design Foundation laid by Richard Saul Wurman in the 1970s? Would we be just information retrieval specialists? You know, what would the prevailing theories and practices be? And how would the practices be different? And would we be as attached to content inventories and card sorts and site maps and wireframes as we are today? But most importantly, we asked, would there even be a field called IA? And would anybody even care if we were gone? And I'll be honest, we weren't asking these questions for their shock value or merely to be provocative. We're asking these questions because we're really passionate about solving these big, hairy information problems. And we love the web and we love creating things that help people connect and communicate. We want to make something meaningful with this amazing technological gift that we've been given. The web is a beautiful thing and IA is part of what enables beautiful things to come from the web. But when we look at the practice of IA, we really saw a discipline that has become narrow, stuck in a rut, and maybe, maybe headed for extinction. And you know we're not the only ones uh, that are thinking this way. There's some other people out there who think the same way as we do. So IA has traditionally staked out this territory of findability and usability. And one of the things we've seen over the past couple of years is that IA is also capable of enabling stuff that's a lot more important. Stuff like culture and community, politics, and citizenship, as we saw in the keynote this morning. And while we focus on finding and using, uh, we talk less about things that are also important, things like understanding, helping people make sense of what they find, enabling smart decisions, influencing behavior to create social change, These are all things that IA can influence and yet not really part of our core practice. In fact, the focus of IA practice is often, often producing a fixed set of deliverables somewhere along the web design assembly line, things like creating content and categories. We do it sometime after business analysis, but usually before visual design. That's the IA box, okay? And you can tell people who are stuck in the IA box because they really fetishize their deliverables. Um, Also, let me see if I can scroll down here. Even in the realm of findability and usability, we're detached from some critical areas. Uh, For example, algorithms for information retrieval and recommendation systems. Uh, These are really the domain of computer science. Um, And most of us only have a superficial knowledge of how these things work, and yet they are so critical for uh, the operation of large-scale websites. And, you know, this is our territory, i.e., findability and usability. But some people are thinking that, you know, uh, this territory could be taken from us. That search companies with their advertising engines and behavioral data uh, could start to create bespoke information architecture for each user. And a company like Google, with products like AdSense and Website Optimizer, could be a lot closer than we think to doing what we do. Now, maybe not better, right? But certainly faster. And cheaper. I think about this. 10 years ago, at the first IA Summit, there was no search engine marketing or optimization industry. Today, this is a huge business. And I know what a lot of you are thinking, right? And let's be honest. You know, We look down on these people. We think they're opportunistic at best, more likely unethical and immoral. But this is a business that is fundamentally about findability, and they're a lot bigger than we are. So, if you're like us, you're probably grappling with some of these questions, some of these issues, and you feel the disconnect between what IA could be and what it promises to be, and what's happened with the practice of IA, how it's gotten narrow, (coughs) rigid, and and limited to a set of few things stuck between a couple areas primarily on the web. And on top of that, you're starting to think about even bigger questions now, things like social design, things like user-generated IA. Things like how you might automate some of the routine IA tasks, how you deal with massive information architecture, uh, how you might build tools that support better IA, and most importantly, the subject of our talk today, how we can get out of that rut, how we might evolve the practice of IA so that it ceases to be narrow and starts to be what we once thought it could be. So I introduce the panelists now. Um, Immediately to my left, I have... Russ Unger, uh, Russ is with Draft FCB where he's the experience, uh, tell me what your title is Russ. Great. Director of
2: Experience Director Planning. Director of
1: Experience Planning, he told me that like 10 minutes ago and I forgot. So <laughs> uh, uh, Russ's left, we have Josh Porter who uh, wrote a fantastic book, Designing for the Social Web and is a, uh, one of the preeminent thinkers and bloggers about social design at Bacardo.com. And we have Christina Woodkey, who wrote a uh, seminal IA text, Information Architecture Blueprints for the Web. Is that the second edition?
3: Second edition. Ooh.
1: Are you giving that away? What? Are you giving it away? <laughs> <laughs> Am I
3: giving it away? I don't know if Austin gets the copies. A lot of them will be going home free. Uh, nice.
1: Russ, are you ready? Yeah. Okay, let's go.
2: All right. So, evolve or die. And you can see there's a nice little gaping void. Uh, cartoon there that is if an ordinary person can understand what you do, you're already halfway to becoming a commodity. (laughs) Yeah, we've all been there. Um, So let's talk about Little IA. And uh, Jesse James Garrett says that it's narrowly focused on content organization and the structure of information spaces. But when this definition, intended for the discipline, is applied to the role, it creates for some the fear of being boxed in trapped in a role so narrowly defined that many of the elements to to success of any given architecture are outside the control or influence of the architect. All right, so talking about commodity, uh, it's kind of like you can buy milk anywhere. And so there's really no price point or bargaining point for it. You can't say uh, from a Jewel Osco to a Kroger or anything else that the milk is really any different. So if you want to be a little IA, then... Uh, you know, somebody who focuses pretty much specifically on sitemaps, task flows, wireframes. Well, kind of sorry to tell you, but you only have a couple of options. And the first one is really you can work for a very large corporation, someplace that has thousands, as in tens of, 20,000, 50, 100,000 people who can afford to hire 10 or 15 people who can focus just on doing sitemaps and wireframes and task flows. Pretty exciting stuff, I know, right? Um, or you can move. You can move to India. You can move to China. These are the two largest exporters or importers of uh, outsourcing in the whole uh, in the whole world. Or you can make a decision for yourself, and you can do that now. And that that decision is that you shouldn't be one of the tools in the belt, right? Instead of instead of just being an IA, that little thing right here, maybe you can be something bigger and broader than that. Um, maybe you can do. Uh, usability, HCI, UCD, maybe you can do interaction design because we all know that interaction design and information architecture are dramatically different. Um, (laughs) But is Dave Malouf here? Don't Uh, mess with me like that. (laughs) Uh, Somebody call Savannah. Um, Or design research. And and don't think I'm kidding about design research. Um, The design research conference last year, one of their big themes, they were talking about uh, how they're doing lots of prototyping. Uh, they're coming for us. I mean, we're all kind of blending and bleeding into each other. So, again, don't be a tool. Sorry, that's fun to me. Uh, be a rock star, right? Think about all these different things that, that you can be. Uh, get off your asses and do something, right? You don't have to be involved in all of these things, um, but you can. You can be broad in many skills and deep in a few, including the IA, the SEO, the design research. Uh, prototyping use cases business requirements more and more people like us are sitting in business meetings and we are extracting business requirements because it's just not happening that way anymore um, so you can be a rock star right you can be a big ia and you can be a big ia because as, as jesse says um, again thanks jesse Uh, It's encompassing a broad range of responsibilities, including strategy, uh, information design, research, interaction design, requirement gathering. uh, The list goes on and on. But as you can see, um, if you are a big IA, you can be involved in pretty much the entire life cycle of a project. Or, even better, you can be in that little honeycomb thing that we pulled out. Uh, Peter, we had a great conversation about that. And, and the one thing about this is, is when you're all of those pieces of the honeycomb and you become valuable, you also add longevity to yourself. You can have an extended career as long as you keep keep on keeping on. Uh, the first people who were doing information architecture, they didn't come out of a degreed field. Uh, they probably didn't read a certain book or two, they they instead were doing something else. Maybe they were copywriters. Maybe they were business analysts. And they found that they needed this order and structure, and they pulled it together, and it worked for them. And the next thing you know, they're in a new role, and and they've got somebody replacing their previous function. There's nothing wrong with that. That's kind of how we've done these things. That's how we've kind of started to grow this field. So big A, big IA is really kind of UX, right? And better yet, because I really, I don't like the U, Um, It's experience design, because really, when's the last time a user came up to you and said, Hey, have five bucks. I really appreciated that website. (laughs) So here's what I have to say about this to all the folks who think that they want to be sitemaps and wireframe jockeys. Wake the F up. Peter, Lou, love both of you, but maybe the polar bear book isn't the right place to start today. Uh, Certainly it's one of the books. But I think that there's a lot of reading that we could do, a lot of a broad range of learning that we can do, and that saying IA is this and this is what I'm going to be might not be the right decision. So where are we? Well, we're at the right place of today, where we have two choices. You can get with the clue train, right? <laughs> get off your asses, stop being a little tiny IA in this little tiny box, or you can go the other direction, and you can start dealing with extinction management. And that's what I have to say about that. This presentation brought to you by IDEA 2009 in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, thanks, Russ. Uh,
0: yeah. Any
1: questions?
2: Yeah, um, sir. That's, that's a very fair question. So, the biggest problem that we have um, at Interaction 09, what? Oh yeah. Uh, basically, if there's a, a bunch of different things that we can do, how do we uh, get? How do we go about educating ourselves? Is that fair, Sarah? Um, at Interaction 09, one of the one of the themes from Jared School's panel was um, nobody wants to hire anybody who isn't a senior IA or senior UX person, right? We all kind of have we all dealt with that. Do, does that make sense? Lots of nods. Um, so how do I become that? Right? Uh, there's a number of different ways I could kind of upset dave carson and, and say maybe you do some spec work uh, but you know maybe, maybe you get involved in a mentoring program maybe you look at some of the other materials that are out there maybe you spread your wings and you talk to people that you work with and say how are you doing business requirements how can i get involved earlier in the process what can i do that that allows me to help help do this um,
3: if i may um, also i'll speak to this a little bit in my talk but i find it very helpful to go to other conferences that aren't necessarily about your profession but perhaps related tangentially. I'm here because I gotta see my peeps and they only fly in from Panama or Chile or wherever they're coming from. Um, I only get to see them here, but I'm, I'm not here necessarily to learn about information architecture, to be honest. Um, the hallway conversations are great, but I love to go to weird other conferences. You know, I, I'm lucky I live in the Silicon Valley. I can go to you know, a uh, vertical search conference or I can go to Search Engine Expo if I want to. That's highly related to us. It's not so different that we don't speak that language. But it's different enough, you got stuff that you haven't heard before, which is awfully great. You know, if you're sitting there and you're going, something's going wrong, you're like, yes, that's right, I agree, I agree. If you're not going, oh, well, wait, that's wrong, and I'm confused, and I need to write that down, Like I gotta look that up, that's how you should be in a conference. You should be like, shoot, wait, slow down, okay, notes, notes, notes. That's how she would feel. So we gotta get out of our comfort zone as much as possible.
2: And don't think of comforts as the money thing. There's plenty of, of bar camps and other yeah. camps out there that, that you can certainly go to, so I don't, don't think you should look at that as. Um, That's a barrier. I mean, those opportunities are there. And if you can't find what you want, you can create your own camp. I mean, that's not really hard.
3: And you can always join a really big company. Sometimes it's easier to move around in a company. Sorry. Yeah, we're
1: going to take Will's question quickly, and then we're going to
2: let Josh talk. Go ahead. So the question, I think, is uh, do I think that companies like HFI, who do a lot of outsourcing of their little IA work, if you will, to companies like, like India, right? are they contributing to the commodification and are they diluting the what the practice um, i think they're taking advantage of a situation that's you know readily available commoditization isn't new Um, jobs like quality assurance they've been going overseas for ages so have many factory jobs Um, when it becomes something that can be done easily and, and to a degree without a lot of skill or thought then I think what happens is uh, people look for opportunities for for that to go other places where there are low-cost centers. So what happens in that case, too, a lot of people think my country or my company or somebody failed me. Now, you know, the reality is this is up to you. You have to make the choice and you have to get off your ass and do something. You can't blame anybody else if your job goes away if you're not prepared.
3: I mean, how many of us own furniture made in America, you know? craft skills get, or how many of us can afford furniture made in America, um, craft craft skills start out as being very thoughtful and crafty. And who thinks their furniture that they bought at Ikea is as nice as something made by a craftsman? It's not as nice, but it's good enough, and good enough wins in the end. Sometimes. And we lose something sometimes. <laughs> so and we gain something sometimes. I have a dining room table, which I might not have if I had to buy American. <laughs> let's, uh, let's let Josh go. Josh.
4: Okay. Okay. Um, so... Um, I've I've never really identified myself as a as an information architect. Um, I've considered myself a web designer for um, all of my career, um, and um, but, but I'm always reading and following um, information architects. I, I I've been doing that you know since I don't know probably two thousand or so. Um, so I'm I'm pretty familiar with with the the community, um, even though I haven't really participated, in it. I know who, who um, uh, most of the people are and, and kind of their theories. Um, but but I, I had this interesting conversation um, a couple years ago um, with a designer who lives uh, near me in, in Massachusetts. Um, his name is Dan Cederholm he's, he's a well-known uh, web designer. And um, we were talking about information architecture. Um, and. And I was kind of asking him like well, you know what's what's your take? I, you know I know you do a lot of client work and you've been doing it for a few years." And he said, "You know, um, well, we didn't really start to define it or anything. but he said, "You know I make a lot of navigation bars and I make um, a lot of structure of websites, and I write a lot of labels, um, and I do that every day for my job." Um, but I've never considered myself an information architect. You know, um, I, I deliver that stuff to clients. Um, I make wireframes. I deliver that to clients. But that's all design to me. It's all design. Like I don't make any distinction between all these um, things. And you know, since then, um, and I, you know, I remember that conversation. That's kind of been the way I think about it too. Like, you know, there's so much divisiveness um, around. Like, you know, on I, I remember. I remember quitting the SIG-IA list because I, I just couldn't take it. Um, I'm considering quitting the IXDA list because I, I just can't take it. Um, because you know we're all basically on the same team, but we somehow find things to argue about all the time. Um, and so I just wanted to share with you a couple observations that I have from reading lists over the years um, and from talking to people. Um, there's a lot of talk um, even at this conference about process and about doing things the right way um, there's um, there's actually not a whole bunch on personas here but that, that's always a big discussion um, on list that, that I'm on um, but the, you know there's things um, uh, there, there's things like do you do uh, content inventories um, what, what's kind of your process for for what you're doing, and there's endless debate over who's doing what. Yeah, I've had several conversations about how to do wireframing. Um, should should you go just just from sketching all the way to HTML and CSS, or should you have um, should you use OmniGraphle, you know, a, a lo-fi, and and like what it, is is it a benefit that um, you know sketching is throwaway, or should you keep that stuff? Um, in order to inform the, or in order to keep around those design decisions that you have in your project. And so just countless, countless, and innumerable questions about process, process, process. But one thing that I found um, in, in dealing with my clients, um, I'm a consultant and, and interface designer, I, I guess that, that is kind of how I describe myself, is that they, t- to them, process is almost immaterial. Like, it, it does not matter um, as long as I solve the problem for them. So I've actually learned to not even worry about the process that I'm working on. You know, take a kind of a, um, a, a tools approach in the sense that I have a whole bunch of tools that I have at my disposal. Um, you know, I rarely use personas, but I can imagine there's a, a time where I might use them. Um, but just the fact that I do, don't use personas doesn't mean that, um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm doing the wrong process. You know, what, what really matters is the, the the whatever I deliver, the, the final product actually works for people, um, and so um, so that's that's one thing. Another thing is that um, there's also a tremendous amount of, of talk of deliverables, um, and kind of um, as as Gene mentioned, um, there seems to be a, a, a subset of, of people who focus so much on deliverables, like you actually imagine that the deliverable is the final product, like that people will actually use that high fidelity prototype to do something with. Um, and it could be that um, in that person's role, that is the final part of their involvement. And so I understand that, that you want to make it as nice as possible. Um, but I think that that kind of attitude will have to go away eventually, that we, we need to do things as fast as we can um, we need to roll out designs as fast as we can, especially in, in an age when um, the, the final pr- product that you do deliver um, is probably going to be changed, need to be changed within a week. Um, so I'm actually working on more products myself where where it doesn't even matter what we launch with. Like we know it's going to be different in a month in like ten different ways, and so you know speed is very important. Um, and, you know, over time, you'll, you'll kind of aggregate all this information about what's important and what's not important. Um, and I, I don't mean to dismiss larger projects where you do have to decide a whole bunch of things. But in general, um, whatever you release is going to be changed earlier and faster than before. Um, another thing I noticed is that um, when when we have these arguments, and a couple are fresh in my mind from the IXDA list, um, is that when, when we talk about like the decisions we make? It's almost we make our decisions based on the process we're using. Well, I did that next because that's the process I'm using, and um, I, I created a persona because I, I needed to aggregate the, the design research or whatever. But no one ever starts out with a conversation that okay, well, this is what we're seeing people actually do, so that's why we're designing this this way. You know, one of the one of the the. One of the outcomes of that is, there's very little discussion of actual screens that people design. You know, like I know a, a whole bunch of people in the room in their work, but I actually don't remember seeing many of the screens they've actually designed. You know, there, There's kind of this um, um, funny thing about personas in particular. You, you go and ask people for examples of personas and you just don't get any because people are like, afraid to show them or they don't want people to see that they're doing them the wrong way. or you know, I, I don't know what it is exactly. But until we get to the point where we can show everything we're doing, we can design in public. Um, I, I wrote a blog post recently about designing in public um, and really saying how not only does that help you improve your design immensely, but it also helps people talk about it, kind of get on the same page you know, and kind of see each other as you know, on the same team. Um, so let me talk about the term information architecture for a second. Um, a, a couple of years ago, I wrote I wrote um, some blog posts uh, that got me in hot water with the IA community, um, to say the least. Uh, and um, what, what one of the things that I learned, or well, the first thing I learned, was how passionate the community is. Like, I mean, I had people saying some pretty crazy things, um, and, and that's actually cool. You know, like I'm I'm I've been here two years now and and it, it is really great, you know. There's awesome conversations, and so um, I, I kind of understand that a lot better. Um, but one of, one of the points that I made then, that I think is still really relevant, is that the term "information" is kind of has this, I think, a negative quality about it. Um, and, and this is this is some of the the this is a quote that I that I had talked about at the time, from a book called The Social Life of Information, um, and. Basically, the quote says that, is that the way you frame something, and this gets back to like um, George Lakoff and framing and, and things like that. Um, the way you frame something, um, the way you think about something changes the way you act on it. So, um, for example, in, um, political, in the political arena, um, some of my friends, um, some of my Republican friends, um, happen to think that government is the problem. And so... Um, that's actually fine you know, that they ha- hold the opinion, but I, I actually can't have a discussion about what like, an efficient government might be with them um, because that's the way that they want to frame the, the conversation a different way than I do. Um, my friend Bob comes to mind, we have arguments all the time. But I think information architecture kind of suffers f- from that in a similar way, that if, if you identify problems as information problems, so, or content problems, like we have all this content, and we just have to display it the right way, or how what's the text the, the correct taxonomy for this content for this information i think I think that, as the first question, is a really bad question, um, and instead of ask, instead of framing things in terms of information, um, which leads to what um, uh, Brown and Duke the, the authors of social life of information call info prefixation where all of a sudden, everything in the world becomes an information problem. And you start saying things like, if they only had the right information, they'd be able to do that. You know? um, but that's really not it. I mean, you know, if, if, so instead, if we frame things in terms of the activity, like what are they trying to do, information actually becomes a byproduct of the activity. Um, so information gets created and gets used in, in kind of the, um, the whirl of the activity, if you will. Um, so information is still important, but it's not kind of the primary object. Um, so I think to kind of, my, my, kind of my, my thinking on where information architecture can go in order to evolve, I think we really have to focus on that word, the second word, um, in architecture. Um, as Michael uh, West said earlier, um, every type of architecture elicits a different type of participation. And he, he said a lot of brilliant things very quickly. But this is this is one of the things that he said that really stuck with me, and this this to me is is very much the heart of design. Um, in the '60s, um, New York City gave um, was giving um, they had this they had this um, um, I don't know what you would call it. They had a, a an ordinance that that told um, high-rise builders, so people who were building high rises, that if you if you build a plaza around your building then we will let you actually add stories to the building so you could build a taller building as long as you created this plaza and so during that time a whole bunch of plazas were built um because that was a really good good um deal for the the builders and um it turns out that a lot of the plazas are really bad like no one they're not social spaces um and um, here's, an, here's um, some pictures of two, two of them, um, and it's from a, it's from a video um, called, um, like, The Social Life of uh, Cities, I think. Um, it's on YouTube. Um, and so one of the things that happened was that researchers got together and they said, you know, all these plazas have been built, but no one really talked about what makes a good plaza and what makes a bad plaza. It was just a plaza problem in the same way that we have a lot of information problems. If, if you frame it that way um, then the results are determined or somewhat determined by that. So the plaza problem was well we just need a huge concrete slab and we've solved the plaza problem and now we can build a, a taller building. So what uh, researchers found was that in order to increase social interaction um, you only need to do a couple really simple things. One is make a lot of places for people to sit. Um, so around fountains and things they put um, like a, a three-foot-high seating wall, um, and two was that they realized that while people are doing a whole bunch of different activities there, the primary activity is watching other people. So, um, people watching, um, and so you would place these things near pathways where a lot of people were walking and moving, um, and so, you know, what what they what they essentially discovered was that and you know architects know this from day one of architecture school was that the space defines the behavior and I think you know we've heard rumblings about this kind of all week and I think a lot of us kind of have it internalized but the space defines the behavior and it's much easier to see i think in the physical world but in the online world the online space um, there's so many variables and there's so many things to see Going on, it's harder to see, but I think it's every every bit as true. Um, another quote from Michael: the um, the architecture of information is blending with the architecture of our daily lives, so they're they're kind of becoming one, um, and you know, we're having a lot of crossover. Um, to, just to give you a, a a quick example of kind of the the, the structural differences, um, and when I say structure, I mean like the environmental differences. Um, and if, if you think about what designers really do is we create environments and structures in which stuff happens. Um, here's, um, here's an example of uh, Facebook, of course. Um, they have, um, oh, I'm sorry, I got, the, I got that first bit wrong. Uh, Facebook has symmetric relationships. Um, so you can't be a friend of someone unless they're a friend of you. You have to reciprocate that. Um, Facebook, all the profiles are private. Um, and the activity stream until last week was lossy. So you, you saw only a, bu- a few of the things that were coming through the activity stream. Um, they, they recently redesigned um, changing that. And on Facebook, I have about 200 friends, um, something I actually don't know how many I have, but last time I checked, it was 200. And compare that um, to Twitter, um, which, again, the first one should be asymmetric. Um, so... Um, Okay, I, I, got the first, I got the first ones wrong. Just switch the first ones. Um, but if I can follow you and you don't have to follow me, so I can have a whole bunch of people following me um, and I don't have to follow all of them back. Like I, I really couldn't follow that many people back um, and actually you know, see all. I, I follow like four or 500 people and it's still almost too much information. Um, but the, the point is, is that the structure of the software changes the way that we use it. Um, um, Andrew spoke earlier about uh, TweetDeck, which is kind of like a second order thing where TweetDeck changes Twitter from this kind of widget on the side of your screen to um, the center of your screen and it takes up the whole screen. So that actually changes your behavior further. Um, and so um, the structural differences between the software and as, as I mentioned, Facebook's changing their structure to be more like Twitter. Um, but Twitter has a real advantage in that, that you can have, you can, you can can you can kind of be much more of a broadcast um, to to your network of followers than Facebook is, um, and that really that really makes a huge difference for me. For example, I use Twitter um, all the time. I use it for professional reasons. Um, I I broadcast things. I try to give out uh, valuable links. I do a whole bunch of business on it. Um, I can't tell you how much business. I mean, I do most of my business on it, um, and so. It's really changed and it's really from these core structural differences that that happens. Um, so structure you know, not only allows for behavior, structure influences behavior in many ways. Um, it, it allows behavior, it influences behavior, uh, it elicits behavior, um, it determines behavior, um, it can even control behavior, um, it can restrict behavior. Um, in general, it changes the behavior. So, I mean, that's that's really what I see the future of IA as, as, um, as thinking about and designing structures that elicit the type or or, or uh, elicit the type of behavior that is good for the business. Essentially, um, so if. So my, my, my main thesis is if information architects continue to approach their challenges as information or content-based problems, I'm sure not all of them do, but I, I, I've seen evidence that, that um, some IAs do this, I think the field will become increasingly irrelevant. I think that's, to, to think about things as informational problems is, is really a, a, a bad thing. Um, but if information architects can approach their work um, as designing environments and structures to help guide and direct behavior in the same way that architects have, have done for physical spaces, um, I, think, I think it has a chance. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Well, there's, there's um, I would make a distinction between several types of behavior. One would be directed behavior so an example of directed behavior is I want you to sign up for my web application. Um, And that's something that we can grab metrics for um, and we can know if it happens or if it doesn't happen. Um, And then um, like undirected behavior would be like Twitter where you essentially have this environment where people, the only restriction is is 140 characters. And a whole bunch of stuff happens there. Um, And I would actually point out that most online environments... Um, are directed behavior. Most online environments are web apps where we want people to do certain things, um, and so I mean I think I think that's a big distinction. Um, so if you're if you're designing a public space or something like Twitter, um, it's about um, you know finding out if people you know finding out that people are people watching and you know then figuring out how to do that how to let them let them do that. But if it's directed, then it's actually, in in my experience, it's a much easier problem um, because then you can kind of like line up metrics and and really kind of focus in on the specific um, behavioral motivations that that people need.
3: So so when we initially talked about this uh, panel, Gene was in, going to talk about methodologies and approaches, and Russ was given the fabulous topic of dystopia, so he's run with that one. Um, I asked him to paint a dark picture, and he did, and Joshua said, what if IA was more social and more focused on the architecture piece? And he ran out of that. I, uh, I asked myself, uh, what if we became more IAe, more into the information retrieval? And I have to say, I'm going I'm to hold to that, but I'm going to take the long route around. So I'd like to say, I don't know if you can read this, I was very inspired this morning as well, you are not your title. If I was gonna write something on my hand for y'all, that would be it. So, uh, thank you. Um, I, I actually got into it with Josh because I inspired his posts that pissed everybody off by saying, um, that I was a little tired of, of, I, of being an IA because uh, it didn't fit me anymore. Nothing, I didn't do any IA stuff and it was a little uncomfortable and uh, it was making me crabby, I realized, with IAs. I'm like, why aren't you all keeping up? And then one day I went, wait, wait, I'm not an IA. <laughs> okay, so let's, so, so let's talk about it a little bit because the thing is I like IAs and I like information architecture and I like the practices. But, but that's not really what I do every day. I'm a product manager. I'm a principal product manager. Um, so this is my daughter. And my daughter eats snails. I just want to put that out there. In fact, she eats just about everything you put in front of her, and then she likes it or not. She eats sardines. Uh, she loves grilled sardines she eats snails she eats all sorts of things because in her world everything is new she doesn't have preconceived notions she checks it out she sees if she likes it she hasn't decided that i'm that kind of person or that other kind of person she's the kind of person who 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 checks out snails when they're put in front of her now she asks for them in every restaurant which is problematic because many of them do not actually serve snails one of her favorite books is a charlie and lola book but I am an alligator. And let me tell you, all the world's wisdom is in children's books. This book is about a little girl who annoys her big brother because she's wearing an alligator suit all the time because she loves alligators because they're very interesting creatures. And she's doing it all the time. And then she mentions she's going to give a talk at assembly about her, you know, her, what she's best at. And he's like, oh, God, you're not going to wear the alligator costume. And she's like, yes, I'm going to wear the alligator costume. And she gets up and stands in front of everybody in the school and says... My name is Lola, and I am an alligator today. I like being an alligator. They're very interesting, but sometimes I'm a Spanish dancing lady, and sometimes I am a caterpillar, which becomes a beautiful butterfly. I like wearing lots of different costumes and enjoying them, and then I get to change, and that is my very best. So I think we should all be like Lola so what do you do? This is actually a fairly common list of stuff that we probably do every day, right? Content inventory, controlled vocabulary, synonyms related, terms Sorry, meditative, buh, 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 I see a lot of people like to knit around here. And I'd love to know how many people think they could make a living knitting. Um, it's very slow, it's exhausting, and unfortunately the Gap sells that same scarf for nothing. Um, so it's kind of hard to, to, to make a viable argument that I could be knitting for a living, even though I still love doing it and it's nicer and it's more valuable. Um, content inventories. I've done one of these once. (laughs) It takes a long time. And I was talking to, uh, the director of design at LinkedIn and she said, I think we need to hire an information architect. And I said, oh really, what kind of problems do you have? You know, and she goes, well... Maybe something with the navigation. I was like, well, you know what they do. They do content inventories. She's like, what's a content inventory? And I say, well, somebody looks at every page in your site and figures out what's on it, and it writes it all down so you can... She's like, a human would do that? Why would a human do that? We can write a program for that in a half hour. It's just, like, bizarre. Um, So a human could do it, and much more cheaply. I mean, forget going to India. I'm going to Mechanical Turk, you know, because you're right. Humans are better at it. Um, And there are some affordable humans out there. I don't think we can get $180 an hour for content inventories any longer. Or at least in the very near future, other people may discover Mechanical Turk. Um, If you don't know what that is, it's pretty interesting. You can put a job up and you say, I'll pay 75 cents per whatever, you know, page, hour, whatever. And somebody or another will do it. Apparently, they're mostly uh, college students and and homemakers. Um, And they do great work. We use them a lot at LinkedIn, actually. So when I was, uh, I think in the second grade, one of my teachers uh, showed me a thesaurus and it had a picture of a dinosaur on it. She goes, a thesaurus is not a type of dinosaur. Well, you know, some years later, I think she might be mistaken. Um, <laughs> I hate to say this. Um, there, were, there was a time where we really needed a human being to go through and make the synonym rings and figure out when you asked one thing, you could find out another. However, um, now that we have huge data sets, the computers are a lot bigger, better at it. Now, this is a search result for something I typed, and I really have a very special talent at spelling errors. I think I'm blessed. I was looking for an Artie Shaw song, and I wrote Artie Shaw. I'm like, there's no E, that's C-H-A-W. I would—I will give 20 bucks to any information architect who who, who knew when I wrote Artie Shaw that I meant Artie Shaw. And what Google does, if you don't know how their spell check works, it's really amazing. What they do is every time somebody writes in a query, doesn't click on anything, writes another query and does click on it, they keep that piece of data. And what they've done is, having seen that over and over and over and over again, um, then they say, oh, there's a pattern here, and we say, did you mean? That's why they don't, it's not really spell check. It's more, when somebody types this, they might actually want this instead. It's actually a recommendation system. And I will tell you that um, that means there are more people like me, which makes me feel a lot better about myself. But this sort of data analysis is um, much more powerful than the handcrafting approach. It it just, it kind of, it it seems to kind of work. It's, It's satisfying, it's the IKEA table. So let's talk a little bit about navigation. We all, we all stomp around and we're like, yeah, I'm doing wayfinding. I make it so people can find things, you know. I, I spent 20 hours last week fighting with my boss about the navigation bar. Well, let me tell you, um, I got to give uh, Peter Merholt's mad props for this. Back in, like, 97, when he was back at ePinions, which I don't know how many people remember he was there, he said, yeah, nobody clicks on the navigation bar. We just use it to tell them what sort of things you can do on the site. We don't actually use it for navigation. And I thought, well, that's a curious idea. So every single site, every single company I've ever worked at, I've done metrics on where people click. And LinkedIn, where I currently am, is exactly the same. I call it the 98-2 rule. We spend 98% of our time working on the navigation, and users spend 2% of their time using it. They actually click anywhere but the navigation bar. They might quickly look at it. Oh, what's this site about? Okay, I'm good. I'm going to click in the middle where all the good stuff is now. Um, we are exhausting ourselves arguing about something that our users aren't using, and we need the metrics to understand that. Um, so navigation might not be the best use of our time in, in the navigation bar. Maybe we should be thinking about that center, that content. How is that content and center driving people deeper into the site? How is that content in the center teaching people about the website, you know? And when Facebook blew out all their navigation except for the tiny thing across the top, I was like, yeah, that's gonna be a big findability problem. I'm sure the users will be very upset about that. And uh, no, not so much. We spent a lot of time on wireframes. Who loves wireframes? Everybody loves wireframes, right? I gotta say, I'm convinced that the reason we do wireframes is because we didn't trust our designers to know what a visual hierarchy was. We would do the wireframes to tell them, oh, by the way, this is the biggest thing, and then this is the next most important thing, and this is the next most important thing. I have an alternative to wireframes. I call them smart designers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, you, uh, if you feel like you've got to hold somebody's hand through a wireframe, um, and I know this is outlandish, then maybe you should find somebody to work with who really understands what a visual hierarchy is, how to engage people. You know, maybe you should consider firing your designer. Um, Anders and I have had many conversations. These are shots from a wonderful Boxes and Arrows article he wrote um, about another alternative wireframes, which is prototyping. Actually, yeah, I ran into uh, Irene Au um, at South by Southwest, and um, she was. Uh, she, you know, she's the, user, the uh, director of user experience at, at Google. She's, like, under, right underneath Marissa Meyer's thumb, except she keeps wiggling out. Um, and she's, like, you know, we were talking about whatever, I Summit and wireframes, and she's, like, people don't still do that, do they? Do people do wireframes? I thought everybody was prototyping. Are there still wireframes? And I was like, no, you can charge for those. And she's like, oh, okay, I get it. Um, So I've got to say that Anders' uh, approach of like, why don't we prototype things instead? Let's create something that's interactive. You know, let's sketch, let's talk to the designers, let's brainstorm and let's start building things. So I think a lot of our tools have gotten a little clunky. So what should we do with ourselves? Well, I have very good news for you. Are these information architects? I don't think so. I think these are search experts, to be quite honest. Well, one of them is a publisher as well. But uh, what have these guys been doing with their time since the polar bear came out? They've been spending a lot of time working on search. Lou's really into search analytics. Peter's got world's biggest library of patterns for search. The future of search, uh, the future of information architecture, for a lot of people who love the information data. Chunky stuff is get deep, go deep, keep going. You know, like start working on algorithms. Why not do algorithm design? It's actually really, really cool. And it's actually not that hard to start to understand. There's some wonderful Tim Bray articles about it. So go deep if you love the data. Uh, You know, if data is your thing, go deeper, deeper, deeper. Recommendation systems are amazing. They're like push search, you have to like get all this awesome metadata and you can recommend based on whether your metadata of one thing is like another metadata, or you can actually do it via human beings, a true recommendation system is built off the metadata of humans. So by that I mean, I'm a human being, right? I have a profile perhaps, I have all these things I click on, I have all these things that I do. And then he's a human being, he has all these things he clicks on, all these things he does. And um, we compare the two and then we realize if he and I both did a lot of things and clicked on all the same things and he did something I'm not. They might recommend that to me. And this is the stuff we know really well. We understand metadata better than anybody. We can talk about it for six hours at a go. So why don't we look, where can we harvest more metadata to make better recommendation systems? How can we figure out how to deal with things like photos and video that have no inherent metadata? Can we use behavior and all the stuff that Josh is working out to actually mine new metadata? Could we create a radical new information retrieval approach? I say you betcha. For these ladies? These ladies are social people. Rashmi Sinha, who gave uh, a closing plenary here. You might think they were IAs. You see them in the hall. She gave a closing plenary. She is running SlideShare now, which is an incredibly social site. She's, she's also a recommendations expert. She does uh, When you see a, a slide and it says related slides, she's really good at figuring out what those related things should be on the right. Erin uh, Malone is writing a book for O'Reilly about what social patterns she's talking about social we are really good we've been spending a lot of time with our users and we understand how they retrieve things we understand how they behave we've got that superpower too we actually could use that to build new social sites and that could be really amazing too and and we're doing it we're already doing it I don't know about these two guys, what they're doing. I went on adaptive path to try to figure it out and I can't figure out what they're not doing, to be quite (laughs) honest. (laughs) You want your gestural interfaces, you want to create experience environments, you know. Sometimes they even do IA, you know? And that point of view that we've developed over these years is really serving them extremely well as well. They're very passionate. They think about organization systems. They think about how people are working their way through systems, and wow, it's applicable to all sorts of things. I bet uh, Jesse or Peter could stand up, say, right now, and say, oh, I just did an iPhone app, or I just built a kiosk, or I just built an airport. I don't know. Um, <laughs> nothing would shock me, to be quite honest, because we're capable of that kind of thing. So um, So what could you do? What could you do? What with all those hours you spend on wireframes? I mean, just think of all those hours you get back by not doing wireframes. You could be designing rules for systems the way Dan Brown talked about in his wonderful talk. You could create social spaces like Joshua was talking about. You could design algorithms, which is a good time. Uh, you could optimize privacy versus engagement, which is how I spend a lot of my time. It's very weird problems. You could be selecting technology platforms because you actually know what they're going to be used for. Your input is valuable. We shouldn't be afraid of what we don't know. We should be afraid of... What they don't know, and we can bring, and we can work together, we can collaborate. We could be iterating business models in really new, interesting ways. and We could be making recommendation systems, which uh, also a good time. Um, so this is a, a tag cloud of titles from uh, one of the IAS things. This is, and you notice that architect's pretty big, but where's information architect? You know, all the types of people like information architecture because it's interesting. Um, I, I would, you know, Russ. You were going to ask people. So, uh, how what? many people here have the title information architect? Not Hold far on. from everybody. Wait.
2: How many of you do information architecture? Uh
3: huh. Ah, it's 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 a it's an it's an approach. It's a tool set. A tool kit, I hope. Not a not a tool. <laughs> um, you know, your title is not you, and so I'm. I, I think that's really important. We shouldn't be afraid to grow and build and still value information architecture and still value those roots. The last thing I'm going to throw out, which is if we're moving on, is information architecture itself, like as we learn these new things, as we take our superpowers to new contexts, are we coming back to the practice and saying, hey, guys, you don't have to do that anymore. You can do this. This is actually working more, better in a, these new contexts, depending on what the things we've learned. I'd love to hear from you ways you think uh, information architecture itself could be extended and embraced or embraced and extended. Um, what, what what can we throw away? What, what is the, what's the new 3.0 version of it? Um, so I just want to put it out there. Your title's not you, but you know what you... Information architecture is—it is, could be you. It could be you. You could bring all your knowledge and insight, and you could change information architecture and grow it for the better. So, thank y'all. <clears throat> you want to raise up the hands. Okay,
1: um, so, let's go ahead.
3: Can anybody restate that? <laughs>
1: so, the question was. uh, Is there a career path for IAs from junior to senior? And are juniors inevitably going to be doing things like wireframes and content inventories, the boring commoditized services that we think
2: constrain IA? Is that the question, essentially? Yeah, Russ is going to take this one. (laughs) Thanks. Um, So have you seen a job description for a senior IA lately? And I can't get to the Internet, I would love to pull one up and and show you that – all of the things that are listed in there aren't all the things that are in what some people think are information architecture. And I don't want to define it, ever. Um, So I think that, that one of the problems that we have is we haven't, as information architects, defined it well enough for the people who are hiring us. I think we need to educate them better before they can start hiring for the right roles. So I, I, I kind of understand your question. I think I'm twisting it a little bit. Um, I think that, that the business world and even even universities have a kind of a, a different view than what we all might perceive ourselves as. So there's an education that I think is on kind of the, the community or, if you will, um, uh, information architecture. Yeah, well, the community. Um, to, to do a better job of educating outward those people who are hiring us and teaching us so that they understand, you know, what that role is. At least that's my view. You can. Let's, uh, and then let's, all let's, we have to let's do let's is figure out what we do. At the, very, <laughs> at the very back in the green shirt. Not
3: do- well, I've got to say that um, the thing, the reason we talk about the dangers of becoming a commodity is because commodities tend to drop in their prices. And if your hourly wage right now is 175 and then it becomes 150 and then it becomes 125 and then it becomes $65 an hour. And then after a while, it's hard to make a living, and that's a little dangerous. What I hope I can say is that what's keeping you from being a commodity is probably because you're very good at what you do. You don't have to write a book. You don't have to sit up here on the stage and pontificate. You just have to be really good at what you do, and being really good at what you do is dropping practices that don't work anymore and picking up new practices when they show up and adopting and adapting and evolving. I think uh, the danger is is contri- trying to continue to sell wireframes when nobody's buying or people are having them done on Mechanical Turk. So I think what you're saying is, you know, just I'm just saying it may be good now, but you got to watch, keep half an eye on the future, and it's true for every tech person. Okay,
1: so wait, we got a question here, then you, and then you. So go ahead.
2: So, so that kind of sounds like education is kind of the issue again, right? I mean, we have to do a better job of, of educating the people who are next, right? Uh, And I agree with you that, you know, you do have to take the junior step to become the senior. Uh, But you bring up graphic design, and I think that's an apple to an orange, in that um, we're we're so much younger than they are as a field. And, um, I mean, yeah, there there has to be that influx for them. But for us, uh, if somebody says that they want a wireframe, then they think they they get an IA. Um, And I think that happens a lot. I'm not saying that that's right. I'm just saying that I think that's part of the, you know, part of the issue. So we still have to do a better job of educating what some of those people are thinking about us.
1: I, I want to hear some of the other questions. I, I'd like to respond to that. I want to hear some of the questions. Go ahead, Dan. I think that's a great question. And do you guys want to tackle that? But the question was why aren't we bringing in the C-level executives, the the senior managers, and and educating them about what the the true value of IA, yeah. not just the. learning about our Okay. Learning about our users as designers. Yes. I'm not sure, but. Um, you take it. Yeah, uh, so good question. Next? No. Um, well, yeah, so uh, first of all, I think, I'll just answer for myself. I think, yes, it's important to educate this. Um, what I heard was educating C-level executives. Could, could Christina bring Reed Hoffman in and, and talk t- to him about all the value of IA that isn't just producing wireframes for the new
4: LinkedIn designer, or, or whatever they might do.
1: Okay,
4: yeah. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I, as I'm, I don't know if you mentioned, I, I work for myself, so I actually have to do that all the time with every client, um, and it's usually just me, um, working with a, maybe an existing design team or increasingly an outsourced engineering team, um, and one of the things that I, that I do early on, um, and I actually. I mean, I, I use wireframes all the time. I, I, again, back to the, the point, my process is probably way different than a lot of processes, but, but I'll just kind of explain a little of what I do, and maybe it'll be similar to someone else's process. Um, but, I mean, one of the things I do is I... The first question I ask is, what What do people have to do to make you successful? So what do your, the people who come to your site have to do in order for you to go home at night saying we had a good day? And it's a really easy question to answer. If the, if the answer is they have to click on advertisements, okay, well, that's that's important to them. Like, I, I, I'm you know, I'm, I may not work with them because that, that might not be my best idea of a, of a client engagement. But if that's what needs to happen, then that changes the way that I design. Or if, if what needs to happen is people need to sign up for our our web app a lot more. Um, that's something I do a lot of. Um, then I know a lot going in, you know, because I've I've done a lot of those projects before. Um, and so so I mean that's one of the that's one of the tactics I use. It's a simple question. What needs what do your users have to do to make you successful? Um, and sometimes you may have to ask it two or three times because you won't get a real straight answer. Um, sometimes they just ignore it and say, Oh well we're trying to do this or we're trying to do that. But you, you really have to ground it in some behavior. Uh, you know, I at the risk of sounding like a like a skinner behaviorist, you know, you, you have to find out what needs to happen, <laughs> you know, in order for them to be successful. And that really drives design decisions for me anyway.
1: Yeah, there was one in the back here. No? Uh, Chris, go ahead.
3: So if I can desnark for a minute, because I feel bad that I got a one-liner off and didn't finish. Um, <laughs> that um, I can do this very slowly. Um, so I think what Joshua said about the the process is unimportant in the abstract, but it's very important in the specific. In other words, you know, if you're working with a team and they're not Zeldman and Bowman, then. You know, you might be in a position where you need to express certain ideas and the audience thinks visually and the wireframe expresses the ideas and as long as you're not holding them to be utterly faithful to the wireframe but say, here's what I was talking about and talk it through, then it's absolutely fine. I'm more worried that we've kind of gotten ourselves into a bit of a rut and we're not exploring alternatives like, okay, so wireframes are working great what could be greater? What could be better? What else can I do? Can I do a sketching session together? Can I do participatory design in which I have all the interface pieces and I let my users build wireframes? Like what else could I be doing? Are we trying new things? Are we doing wacky new things and seeing if they're better? Are we just like, I got this one down. So I'm just saying you've got something good where are there opportunities to get it better? Where are the opportunities to grow it more?
2: Is, is anybody besides Todd teaching their clients to do wireframes? That's awesome. I, I mean, but that's helpful, right? What? Oh, well, you teach them to prototype? Yeah, no, we could go away
3: to college and Well. It was directed to me, but I'm happy to pass it to anybody else. <laughs> I have to say that um, I, I'm, I'm a little mortified that we're very happy to spend the next period of conversation talking about wireframes. They're just so fascinating. Um, I have to admit, you know, you're working distributed. Do you think that's ideal? Would you rather be in the room together hanging out with, you know, Jeffrey, like brainstorming some stuff together? Um, I think if you weren't... If you weren't doing wireframes, you'd be doing something else. You might be going deeper in the algorithm or doing deeper into the complexity of the system. Or you could go the other way and not do a wireframe, but actually do the design. I think there's a lot of people who don't think of themselves as, as good of designers as they are. And they're making these amazing wireframes. And guess what? You just turn on the color and starting to have a really amazing sight. Like, it, it just has always felt me like a lot of duplication of effort and wasteful. Now, maybe it's, I, I, work, I work in a startup. A very humongous startup at this point. It's almost no longer going to be called that. But uh, the, yeah, I know it was a startup when I joined a year ago. Um, and it's it the thing is that we everybody all the designers are interaction designers and graphic designers. And that means they're also information architects. Every, every, All of them do one thing. And so I go and I talk to them about the business needs and the technology needs, and then they do you know, some sketches. And if they do wireframes, it's for themselves, so they feel very comfortable moving everything around, and they use it as conversation. And then they do the design, and they did pretty much everything up to uh, the front-end development. I mean, if they want to do wireframes, go to it. They're not having to work as these weird specialists, and they often come in and they say, God, this is so nice. I don't have to give up part of what i do but on the other hand none of them are deep deep specialists in search technology none of them are deep deep you know it's a t you can go broad or you can go deep and you're playing broad you know or maybe jeffrey's going deep and you're making up there's a lot of different situations i'm just saying let's look at these and say is the is the orthodoxy the best are there alternatives?
1: Is there a, Okay, so just quickly. Is there a question that isn't about wireframes now? So we can, <laughs> can move on to some other topics. Okay. I
3: can rest, too.
1: Okay, well... <laughs> um, we'll do, I said her next and then you, okay? Yeah.
4: Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... One uh, of the points I made in my talk is that the problem trumps the process. Um, we've been talking about process now for like half an hour. And... I really think that this is almost irrelevant, because every single project and problem that we have is completely different than everyone else's. Well, um, maybe not completely different, but it's very it's a different business problem, it's a different interface problem. And to somehow argue that you need wireframes, you don't need wireframes kind of ignores the culture in which you're doing design. And if you need to create wireframes, if you need to create amazing wireframes that are high fidelity, then for your culture, then go ahead. Um, you know, th- this is this is what Apple does, right? So Apple creates like ten um, super high fidelity mockups. You know, like two down to the the, um, the the gradients. You know. Um, but that doesn't mean that all teams should do it. That means that you know, that they're in a pretty um, unique culture. Um, and you know, in, in my experience, um, I, I work with some startups, and like, sometimes I do a wireframe um, literally in five minutes and send it to them and just to communicate the idea, as you say, and that's enough. And they don't come back to me and they say, well, that needs to be you know, higher fidelity. Um, or that needs to be... Um, maybe they have a question about it. Um, but, but I think I think we're, we're kind of glossing over the fact that, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of communication has to happen. Every situation is different. Um, it certainly depends on the size of the group that you're working in. Uh, the larger the group, the more communication needs to happen usually. Um, and the more communication needs to happen with people you don't work with on a daily basis. So... Um, You know, and I I think that's that's actually a a big problem for a lot of design projects that, that happen in really large companies. There's just way too much red tape. There's way too much overhead. Um...
3: Well, the, uh, the only thing I want to bring up was, um, I don't know if there's somebody here from eBay, but Luke Rabowski tells a lot of stories about how design got respect by eBay, and it wasn't because they made the most beautiful conceptual models. What they did is they made an argument, a business argument, and they said, we believe that if you let us A-B test a design that we've come up with, we can improve the numbers. And they did it, and they did. And from that little change, they got some business respect. And they said, hey, We've got our eye on this other thing. You mind if we try out this other design? They didn't do a giant heuristic analysis. They didn't do a big concept model. They just said, we think we can move your numbers. And because eBay is a metrics-driven culture, they did move the numbers and they got some respect. I mean, engineers uh, don't get respect by showing off their giant uh, architecture model of their systems. They do it by writing code that works and is fast. And so are we being process driven or being results driven and so another alternative approach to getting respect is make your business hella rich just an idea okay
1: so um we'll do joe and then you and then others it's a great question Uh, so let's deal with the commoditization stuff first russ that was your thanks yeah Um, you you ready what's what's happening on twitter there yeah the question (laughs) so the yeah let me try to restate it the question was for a business Commoditization is good because it's reliable and cheap. A, a commoditized service or product is good because it's reliable and cheap. And, it's, and it's, it's so bad if IA becomes that from the uh, the purchaser's perspective. That's the first question, right? Okay. Well, I, I think, um,
2: it, gosh, I hate to actually quote Jeremiah Aoyang from last week, but he said, uh, "It's okay to outsource your design, just don't outsource your design strategy." And I, I, honestly, I, I, I I absolutely believe in that. I think he's right. That if you uh as long as you've got the right thinking who can push along the other production level work, does it matter if it's if it's getting done, you've got the right guidance and you've got that less expensive commodity in place? From a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: So Anders, okay, so, so we've got five minutes left and I want to get in as many quick questions as possible, kind of the lightning round. Yeah, I'll take I'll take that just very quickly and we'll go to the next question. I had a, I had a great conversation with um with Carl Fass this morning, and he, we are talking about how much IAs and, uh, are talking about business and ROI and, and sort of root their practices are in are we generating value for the business, but don't talk so much about are we having impact on the culture, although that's clearly important. Are we having impact on our communities? Are we, are we having the kind of political impact? Are we seeing the kind of change that we want to see? And maybe there needs to be a kind of triple bottom line for the IA practice that's more than about ROI or business impact and consider some of these other things and educates people on how we create those or enable those changes. Uh, Next, Chris Farno in in 30 seconds. I can do this
3: in 30 seconds. There's two things. One is um, I decided I wanted to design more things. I wanted to make great products so I wanted to design the business model. I wanted to design the technology approach. I wanted to touch more things, less deeply. So that's sort of why I went into it. What I've learned about becoming a product manager is it's a lot like being a restaurant manager. When you're a restaurant manager, you wear the suit and you stand in front and shake people's hands, you handle the money, you can fire and hire people, but when your dishwasher does not come in, you roll up your sleeves and you get back there and you wash dishes. You're the guy who's in charge of every little thing, whether it's big or small, it has to be done. And if there's nobody to do it, you do it. So there's some pluses and minuses, you know. I didn't really think I was going to have a good time in Excel, and I'm still not. But on the other hand, I get to say, yes, we're going to do it this way, and it launches that way. So it, it, it's definitely different.
1: Okay. Um, we're just about done, but I want some final comments from Josh and Russ before we depart.
4: Okay. Um, what, what would you I say? actually didn't talk about metrics what last plan? time, so I will this time. Um, so, so, yeah, just kind of we talked about metrics a little bit. We talked about culture a little bit. I think those two things are very important. Um one of, the, one of the fears that I see at a lot of the conferences I go to and a lot of the people that I talk with online um, is kind of the fear of being evaluated on the work that we do directly from other peers. Like, um, and I mentioned earlier the idea of designing in public, um, and I think, I think that will in, in, hopefully increase the, the act of designing in public and sharing what we do, um, but also not just in public, but also in private, like, we're going to start to attach metrics to all the things that we do all the screens that we design um, all the flows that we design um, and that that's coming and if it hasn't come if it hasn't come to you yet it's going to in the next couple years um, especially if the economy stays the way way it is because you know we're going to be eking out all the advantages as we can i've personally found it liberating (laughs) um, to, to be honest with you um, because I, I think it's much more rewarding when you know, even if you know that that the screen you just designed wasn't as good as the last one, that's something you can do something with. That's that's actionable. Okay, we need to do more research. Let's let's go do more research and figure it out. Um, and if it is better, then you're like, hey, you know, uh, maybe I should get raised. Um, <laughs> and w- I mean, one of the one of the things that's kind of preventing this now is is the way that development is set up. Um, you know, just asking most development teams to revert back to a previous design would you, you you'd actually they, they look like deer in the headlights like i'm not sure what that possibly means um but that we need to be able to do that we need to be able to do things like that we need to be able to roll out designs tomorrow if we need to um you know everything's going to speed up design's going to just come faster and faster changes are going to be made all the time um, i'm sure you guys deal with this at linkedin a lot um you know that's what um um, you know there's a lot of myths about you know uh, Flickr making fifteen changes a day on their website and things like that. I mean I think that will eventually get to that in most of our design so, um, so so I guess my my only comment would be don't don't necessarily be afraid of that. Um, we are not necessarily just the work that we do at work you know um, we can um, you know, we, we can be good at that, but it's a, it's okay to be judged by that. Um, and it actually, if you embrace it, it actually makes you a lot better um, at what you do. Okay, so.
2: hey Russ. Uh, so I like information architecture, just so we're all clear. <laughs> but um, I think it's a piece of, of part of that which is the bigger design, and, and I think that um, we've all got to, you know, keep honing that practice of IA. That's a really good thing. But doesn't have to be the only thing you focus on, and and especially to Josh's point about the, the economy and stuff, you've got to be bringing more value. And and if all you want to do is be an IA for the rest of your life, you've got to take a hard look at, at what that means for you and how focused that is, um, and if there's value in that. So I, I think that um, you know to keep doing what we're doing, we have to kind of follow some of the examples of the early folks who have grown into business owners and and product managers and. You know, maybe in the next five to ten years, Steve Jobs won't be the only CEO who came out of a, some sort of a designer background. That's just how I feel.
1: All right. And uh, I'm just going to let it close there. we're already On a high time. note? <laughs> What's on a high note, yes. Yeah, on a high note. Thanks a lot. Um, and uh, I want to thank all you guys f- for your questions and your insights. They were great.
0: To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxnarrow.s.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.